So this is our second uh, panel discussion today, uh, and we're going to be attending most directly at what, about <coughs> at what philosophers themselves have said about the idea of doing philosophy with children. And really, that can never be completely independent of their understanding of what philosophy is, and that, that typically speaking, will come first. Their understanding of what philosophy is will devolve into some thought, whether they stated or not, about the appropriateness of doing it with children. There's an amazing passage in a book by Stanley Cavell, who's a contemporary American philosopher who, who brings in his children into his work in extraordinary ways, but he was going into some kind of description of what he thinks uh, philosophy is, and then at a certain point he says, so, philosophy is education for grown-ups. And that's as it would, you know, it decides the question of uh, the uh, applicability or appropriateness of doing philosophy with children from within an understanding of what philosophy is. Anyway, so what we're going to be looking at in this, um, this session is what philosophers have said or, or arguments, as it were, from inside philosophy about doing philosophy with children. And we're going to go in in this order that we have here. So first of all will be Katerina Deli Giorgi and then Angie Hobbs and then Vivian Orchard. So uh, Katerina first. Thank you. What I want to do is I don't want to address directly the issue of teaching philosophy to children. I want to discuss and contrast two Enlightenment educational models, one that I attribute to Rousseau, the other to Kant. Uh, both models are what modern educational theorists call value-oriented. That is, they propose that education be guided by values and be concerned with imparting values. However, neither model sets off with a substantive conception of value, and I think that this is interesting and relevant to contemporary concerns, and especially the concerns we have here, because uh, the key value is uh, about teaching philosophically, so to speak. Here is the contemporary background that I sketched before. A number of theorists with otherwise quite different normative outlooks, typically utilitarian or liberal, Converge in considering that education of children should be neutral among substantive conceptions of the good life. The philosophical literature on the specific difficulties utilitarians and liberals have in setting out clearly the aims of education takes this basic commitment to neutrality for granted. In fact, the difficulties confronted by the two approaches are generally about maintaining neutrality whilst proposing aims that are consistent with and plausibly derived from the guiding normative principle of each outlook. So happiness maximization for utilitarians, freedom maximization for liberals. This concern with neutrality is, of course, not universally shared. Value-oriented approaches have vocal advocates for whom the proper aim of education is to, quote, to inculcate values onto children. Rousseau and Kant can be viewed as advocates of value-oriented education, but they are not concerning, concerned with inculcating substantive values. Their approach to education is shaped by two things, a view about value, which informs the educational aim, and a view of human beings, which influences their recommendations of how we can realistically reach that aim. To understand how value orientation can be different from substantive value inculcation, we need to look at a problem confronted by Rousseau, Kant, and their contemporaries. This is basically a problem about how and indeed whether a morality of freedom is possible. 
A specific Enlightenment debate about censorship is one of the many expressions of this basic problem, and I shall use it to illustrate it. The particular worry that emerges in this debate is whether intellectual freedom is compatible with violence, and especially the public good. In a famous letter to the public censor, Voltaire enters this debate seeking to dissolve the issue, arguing that absence of censorship, the freedom to publish the bad as well as the good, is desirable because, I quote, the man of taste will read only what is good. In a way, Voltaire is advocating here a neutral approach for grown-ups. By placing the responsibility for choosing the good on the individual, he's able to present freedom of the press as a necessary condition for the individual's exercise of his critical faculties. But there is one unwarranted assumption that the capacity for discrimination is enhanced through contact with material of various quality. For this assumption to be true, we would need assurances that our thinking has an inherent normative orientation towards the good, the useful, the worthwhile, etc. If we could have this, then we could believe that when exposed to a range of material, the normative connection is activated somehow and we choose correctly. Rousseau and Kant share the view that whatever good natural dispositions we do have, we also have a bunch of others that impede our smooth progress towards enlightened aims, for instance, toleration of other viewpoints and critical thinking, let alone more broadly desirable aims, such as good judgment, truth, morality, and justice. One hopeful fact about us, however, is that we are educable. So let us now look at their educational models. Rousseau appears the gentler of the two, but in fact is the more radical and I think the more scarily idealistic. He advocates what looks like a hyper-neutral approach, advising famously the educator to keep the child's soul idle for as long as possible. <laughs> but this advice must be seen in the context of a very specific view that Rousseau defends vigorously elsewhere, namely that one is not born bad. So there is no need to rush in with moralizing precepts. Guided experience is best for the purpose of developing the pupil's critical faculties. Direct observation is better than theoretical lessons because it helps the pupil learn to trust his judgment. And the core of Rousseauian education just is the development of strong judgment that won't be swayed by corrosive influences. However, and here is the difficulty, Rousseau is concerned that corruption always threatens and that education is no good unless it is total, that is, completely immune from corruption. So he supplements the value of good judgment with the element of community and consensus, a substantive teleology in the sense that every exercise of judgment is aimed at affirming the communal values. Good judgment becomes then collective. <coughs> Kant's conception of value is more explicitly formal and rather more austere. It is an end that can be thought of as universalizable. It is this conception that underpins his comments on education and provides us, I think, with a plausible basic, basic educational model. The core thought is that value must be thought of as something that is shareable and the judgment of value something that is defensible in front of a putatively universal audience. In the context of autonomous thinking, this yields what Kant calls the maximum of communication, think from the standpoint of everyone else. This is a positive step that follows from the negative step 
to think for yourself. I do not uncritically accept the values of others, the views of others. The critical step is a condition for thinking independently, but Kant, unlike Voltaire, does not leave us with no value orientation. He gives us the formal orientation towards universalizable judgments. This is what permits him to claim, uh, in the first critique, in fact, that the young should not be sheltered from dangerous writings until their faculty of judgment is mature. Keeping youthful reason under tutelage, he says, weakens the pupil's judgment. Although, like Rousseau then, Kant emphasizes the importance of judgment, good judgment is not collective, it is distributive. Finally, whilst the model is formal, it includes recognition of a whole range of things that are needed for it to get off the ground, uh, such as cultivating traits that allow this inclusive and critical outlook to be sustained, such as a social model of a culture of enlightenment, the development of cognitive and emotional aptitudes, and so forth. So, thank you. That almost brought us back on time. So, <laughs> Angie, if you'd like to. Can you, can you hear me? Is that okay? Great, thank you. Well, I've been asked to talk about ancient Greeks on philosophy for children, and I did point out that, though, of course, you see Socrates and Plato's dialogues doing philosophy with um, kids of sort of 13, 14 upwards, on the whole, the Greeks don't actually discuss uh, philosophy for children. What I'm going to do with my 10 minutes is talk about why I think ancient Greek philosophy provides a fantastic treasure trove of resources for starting children on philosophy. Because one of the many advantages of starting children young on philosophy is that children tend to be unself-conscious about asking the big questions, as we, we saw from uh, Peter's videos earlier. And ancient Greek philosophy certainly tackles these big questions with, with gusto, questions of time and space, identity, uh, questions about how we can live and flourish. And furthermore, it tackles them in ways which are enormously appealing uh, to both primary and secondary children uh, through paradoxes, uh, puzzles and puns, through vivid uh, stories uh, and aphorisms and myths. It appeals to children's sense of fun and indeed those, those teaching them. So for instance, if you're starting to investigate time uh, and motion, what better place to start than Zeno's paradoxes about the moving arrow is motionless. Chuck that out at a <coughs> stroppy eight-year-old. The Achilles can't overtake the tortoise. I've just marked 85 exam essays on Achilles and the tortoise, and I got some really sweet tortoises um, <laughs> drawn for me. Um, and if you're going to start to explore questions about identity, Heraclitus is your man. You can't step into the same river twice. Actually, he probably didn't say that. It's probably a paraphrase, but it, it'll do for us. Uh, the sun is new every day. And for teenagers, I wouldn't maybe try this one on eight-year-olds, so you could. For teenagers going through their existential angst phase, Mortals are immortals, immortals, mortals, living their death, dying their life. 
They won't need to pop a daft pill on a Friday or Saturday night ever again. They can just go out clubbing with a copy of the pre-Socratics in their, in their pocket, a much healthier and more enriching psychedelic experience. For children brought up on Harry Potter, Doctor Who, Lord of the Rings, these imaginative leaps through time and space and into fantastical other worlds are an enticing challenge, not an obstacle. Look how those, what were they, 10? Did we decide they were 10 in the end, those children? were They were just so comfortable with Democritus and Leibniz and all the really zany stuff. And when we turn to ethics, the Greeks sensibly do not assume that we just piously want to be virtuous without putting up a fight first. Uh, they start with absolutely fundamental ethical questions they think we can all sign up to quite rightly and that will appeal to all of us. How should I live? What sort of human should I be? No assumption we want to live virtuously. And furthermore, Plato in particular uh, tackles these questions through stories and myths which will all, always appeal to children of all ages. For instance, in Republic One, um, the question of whether we think that it really is going to pay us individually to be just. Actually, it's Republic Two, the beginning of Republic Two. I'm sad I know that, really. Um, <laughs> is explored through Gyges' ring. Gyges, you remember. Uh, is a, is a, I think is a Lydian, is he a Lydian, a Lydian shepherd and a, there's an earthquake and a ring is discovered in the crack and he picks it up and finds when he twists it uh, he becomes invisible within a month, I think it's a month he's killed the king and married the queen and is lording it over Lydia. And again for teenagers in Plato's Phaedrus there's an absolutely beautiful uh, intoxicating description of falling in love as growing wings lots of sexual imagery which they will really, really love. And it's a, it's a fabulous image of flying philosophers, uh, another, another kind of psychedelic trip. I, I do sometimes wonder whether my favorite philosophers, what they were on, and whether, whether magic mushrooms has actually formed the basis of Western civilization. <laughs> and of course, Plato also explores these huge ethical questions through dialogue, through open-ended dialogue, what better way to bring children into a discussion uh, and show that you can disagree with each other, even robustly, without actually fighting. And not that they always practiced what they preached. There's a wonderful story that Plato's pupil, Aristotle, once biffed Plato so hard in a row over the forms that he broke Plato's nose. Uh, don't try that at home. But anyway, the, the principle is, of course, that you do the dialogue without, without actually fighting. But all this fun and games uh, doesn't mean that ancient Greek philosophy can't teach the value of rigor and clarity. For instance, does it pay me to be just? Well, that depends on how you're going to define justice. Do you define justice as giving others their due or in terms of your internal psychic harmony? Uh, the same for whether moral excellence is teachable. Again, how are you going to define it? Do you think it's the kind of thing, such as knowledge of the good, that could be taught? 
So we've, we've got all these virtues. And the fact that it's often challenging and difficult and does not give us pat answers, but forces children to think for themselves and question everything, question authority, question the authority of their philosophical teachers is a good thing. Helps build confidence. I want to end uh, just with, so obviously for all these reasons, ancient Greek philosophy is, is a treasure trove. We just can't afford to deny our children. It's a wonderful place to, to start them. And in terms of the whole, the, the, the usual charge, you're dealing with dead white males. Well, it's true they are mostly male until you get to Hypatia. I always forget her dates. She's about 300 and something AD. That's true. Dead, depends on whether you believe in Plato and the reincarnation of the soul. Uh, white, well, whitish. You know, pretty olive, not that white. But what I think is more important is that you're dealing with people who do not fit into any obvious modern political categories of left-wing and right-wing. Plato's Republic has been called the sort of origin of communism and the origism of fascism. Both are true. It's, uh, it doesn't fit, and of course it doesn't uh, make use, of course it can't make use of any of the great monolithic world religions, uh, which we don't seem very good at living in harmony at the moment. Uh, the religion it's using is a religion that not many people go and worship anymore, not many people pay libations to Zeus, perhaps we should. And for that reason, again, it transcends the religious and cultural backgrounds of the children you're dealing with. It's wonderfully inclusive. They, they, they can leave their normal kind of cultural uh, inheritance behind. They can do some ancient philosophy and through that gap in time, they can really come together and discuss these fabulous questions. Thank you. Thank you, Angie. Uh, Vivian, are you going to stay where you are? I am, if that's okay. Uh, let's just make sure you, everybody can hear. You might want to pull that a little bit towards you. Should be Is that quiet. okay? Don't can you know. hear me? Ask them. Let's see. Okay. Can everyone hear me? Okay, great. Okay, thanks. Um, I apologize, I have a slight um, cough, so I'm sorry, that's rather irritating. Um, in terms of the uh, tripartite schema set up this evening of practitioners, philosophers, and policy, um, uh, Derrida uh, can figure in terms of all three of these aspects, perhaps surprisingly, having served on, uh, he served on policy commissions on the teaching of philosophy, um, at university level, uh, fought against the uh, attempt to cut back philosophy teaching in French schools and founded a research group to reflect on the institutionalization of philosophy teaching in France, uh, producing a substantial body of writing on this, which until recently has been relatively um, unexplored or underexplored. Um, perhaps some people find this surprising um, in terms of his uh, more celebrated persona. At the time of these activities, the 1970s, 1980s in particular, uh, where his work was sort of more in terms of going beyond philosophy uh, rather than defending current, current arrangements, perhaps. Um, his remark in 1994 that I'm a very conservative person, I love institutions, uh, perhaps seems surprising, although who amongst us would disagree? 
Um, he did also have a say that deconstruction is the exposure of the institutional identity of the discipline of philosophy and insisted recurringly throughout his work from the mid-70s on on the centrality of these questions to all of his work. Uh, what I'm going to uh, just do here in this very limited amount of time um, is try and sketch in some of the uh, French context of his operations uh, without in any way suggesting that they are the sole horizon of this work. Um, just very briefly, first of all, from what we've been saying tonight, it would seem that France is heaven on earth, having got all the things on the tick list of desirable criteria. Uh, philosophy uh, exists in the training of primary school teachers as part of the national curriculum in schools for the last 200 years, and also, as is extremely well known to the point of cultural cliché, uh, circulates widely in the broader culture, a fact frequently remarked upon, often uh, uh, not entirely positively. Uh, here, for example, is Theodore Zeldin, the history, historian of France, uh, pointing out that it was in the philosophy class in French schools that French men uh, know to learn their characteristic abstract and pompous vocabulary, their skill in classification and synthesis, solving problems by rearranging them verbally, their rationalism and scepticism paradoxically conformist, and their ability to argue elegantly and apparently endlessly. <laughs> and and uh, A.J. Ayer, when he was canvassed on the proposed introduction of philosophy into English schools in the 1950s in the form of an A-level in logic, uh, gave us conclusive proof of the disastrous consequences of any such initiative, uh, the French example, where according to him it could be judged not just as a curricular mistake, but as the source of everything that was wrong with so-called French philosophy. Um, so philosophy's circulation in wider French culture um, can be uh, noted in a variety of uh, instances. Soap operas centred on the figure of the philosophy teacher, media quizzes on the exam questions when they're announced each year, uh, a little bit like the uh, amusing light pieces on the Today programme on Oxford entrance exam interview questions, perhaps, uh, to the well-travelled idea, of course, of philosophers as French public intellectuals. In terms of the uh, institutional arrangements, as I say, philosophy, as I'm sure everyone knows, is part of the back in the final year only in French schools, so in that unique age group, uh, in teacher training, but not in primary schools, but also crucially in the two-year preparatory classes for the École Normale, for the elite École Normale, and hence the basis for its uh, distinction educationally and socially. Um, and it's actually been written about as a sort of site of memory in Pierre Nora's sense, in the National Cultural Imaginary. So Derrida's work here, um, first of all, just a little uh, tiny bit on, on the history of this very distinctive institutionalization, uh, which his research group sought to uh, write and to re-scrutinize as the first part of their activities, as the first part of their project for fighting for the survival of philosophy in schools, which was going to be curtailed in the mid-70s. Um, as I say, it was introduced uh, in the second decade of the 19th century. Uh, the person responsible for this was Victor Cousin, the eclectic philosopher. Uh, uh, and if it's said sometimes still that um, the rigidity and centralization of national education in France is Napoleonic, um, it can still be argued that the teaching of philosophy in French schools remains recognizably Cousinian to this day. Um, the idea of Cousin's secular catechism uh, comes from this uh, uh, early to mid-19th century period, the idea of the philosopher in the service of the state, Socrates Fonctionnaire, Socrates' civil servant, uh, whose stock in trade was certainty, not questioning, socially acceptable views, and the training of the elite for a very clear ideological social purpose. 
Um, philosophy was set up here as the crown of education to inculcate patriotism, an optimistic vision of progress produced by human reason, and a synoptic recapitulation of earlier schooling. So almost a parody of the Hegelian idea of philosophy. Um, philosophy was repressed in the 1850s um, uh, uh, in some attempt to modernize, but also for fear of its dangerous nature. Uh, and controversies over its teaching um, carried on very much in the second half of the 19th century in France. Um, it didn't disappear into the system without trace as just another curricular permutation. It remained a touchstone in the struggle between church and state for control over education. So very much to the fore. That brings me to the other just second key point. I mentioned Cousin, just the other one, is the so-called golden age of French philosophy teaching, which is harked back to all the time in French philosophy teachers' uh, discourses and debates around philosophy teaching even now. The Third Republic, uh, the latter part of the 19th century uh, in France, and Republican education as a national citizenship project with philosophy as the apprenticeship of freedom through the exercise of reflection. Uh, this being in two senses, the intellectual one, the sense of transmitting enlightenment values of self-critical freedom, and the overt civic one, the sense of affirming French Republican values of secular freedom. Okay, this apprenticeship consisted of both the encounter with philosophy itself and with its practice of fostering independent habits of thinking. And philosophy teaching was idealized as the true embodiment of all philosophical activity um, and uh, also as the essence of schooling, the essence of education. And you get a lot of writing this time of the figure of the philosophy teacher uh, embodying unique charisma um, in his practice of his teaching, uh, in his charismatic relationships with his pupils, a kind of myth that still circulates. Uh, today, hagiographical accounts of philosophy teachers written by former pupils, uh, as well known as Proust, but many others. Uh, so the pupils were celebrated, the humble teachers wrote nothing, their oral discourse was their production alone. Um, and the correlative of this from that time on, interestingly, was that philosophy became seen as peculiarly susceptible to an awareness of the gap between an idealized version of itself and the potentially rather more dull reality of its institutional forms and norms. This being the paradox of Socrates' civil servant, the banalized routine of the institution, the contradiction of philosophy in the service of the state. Uh, if philosophy is most truly embodied in its teaching, then any kind of idea of pedagogy, if by that is implied a pre set of preset methods and inert curricula transmitted uniformly routinely, functions as a kind of antithesis. This is a focus of one of the essays Derrida wrote as part of his work here. So the threat which he uh, responded to with his group, as I say, was a reduction, a dilution in the name of modernization, you won't be surprised to hear. Um, and uh, the minister in question, René Abbey, uh, aimed, he said, to root pupils more firmly in the world around them by introducing them to more modern subjects such as social science, by re-embedding philosophy uh, in social science subjects. Uh, Left-wing critiques obviously weren't happy. And interestingly, one of their arguments against this was that this was the age of coming to uh, social critique, uh, of critique as, as educational purpose. So the last year of school was the year of coming of age critically, uh, with the charisma of the philosophy teacher being based on a kind of iconoclasm. Um, the defenses of philosophy uh, at that time and since in France uh, were always couched as a defense, never a justification. So very much in striking contrast to the transferable skills type arguments in answer to worries about uselessness, um, much more about fundamental principles, Republican ideals, enlightenment values. Philosophy is crucially a part of both uh, and for certain social outcomes rather than any sense of merely pedagogical disagreements. So why Derrida is the defender of all this, um, why this insistence on philosophy, perhaps uh, improbably in relation to his work it might seem, and presented as central, not merely ancillary, 
the question of the institution as central, not incidental. Um, very much this is because of the importance of the material conditions and practice of philosophy as a discipline and its relationship to other disciplines, um, and there from there to its own historicity and language. Um, obviously, uh, his group uh, and in his own work, they didn't set out to defend philosophy as a crown, as a synthesis, as initiation. These were all ideas they set out to overturn. They wanted to dethrone it and to expand it, to uh, bring it to younger pupils um, in order to have some idea of progression, in order not to have it confined in this single year where it still remains uh, up until now. So this idea of unraveling a philosophy's relationship to its own institution, um, the pra its practice is not external to it, as not simply a matter for socio-historical interest, but as a philosophical matter as such. It's something which Derrida continued with uh, in his work in the setting up of the International College of Philosophy and in his writings. And the group's collection, a large collection, Who's Afraid of Philosophy, uh, set out various work groups working on, for example, this is very post-68, but working on uh, pupils' uh, corrected work and doing uh, readings of the teacher's corrections as well as uh, of the discourse of the pupils, looking at the discourse of the textbooks of the inspectors in terms of what uh, Bourdieu has termed the unconscious of the school. Um, interestingly now, uh, I can only bring this in just uh, in passing, but this academic year, the current Minister of Education, Luc Chatel, has tried to suggest that there should be a pilot uh, group to bring philosophy to 15-year-olds, to a younger age group uh, in France. Uh, unhappily, of course, he can't promise any extra teachers, so his solution to that is to have uh, philosophy becoming involved, he says, in other subjects, literature, art, scientific method, working in conjunction. Potentially very interesting, but the philosophy teachers are worried this means uh, a dilution um, and, in fact, uh, it is just a sort of uh, excuse, interdisciplinarity is an excuse. Um, these are exactly the terms and the objectives which uh, Derrida and his group were working against uh, in the mid-70s up until the mid-80s. So in that sense, uh, it remains the same. Um, that's all I'm going to say for now. I think my time's up. Uh, that, the idea of uh, progression that uh, Vivian brought in there, I think it's very important for us to think about when we're turning our attention to um, justifying why philosophy might be done with children, because people often say, look, it's too difficult. They can't do it until, like, university age or something like that. And the progression argument is very important here, because it's one we use with respect to other difficult things, so playing the violin is extremely difficult, but that doesn't mean you can't start and do it very badly when you're very young and get better, and equally with uh, mathematics or, or anything, with karate and, and why not philosophy. So you can use that same argument that will always be used for any difficult subject, that it doesn't hurt to start it young even if they're not going to do it particularly well. Right, thank you, Vivian. Um, got some time for questions now. If you wait for the microphone, yeah. Um, my question really for Angela, um, if you think, as actually I do too, the Greeks are a, a great place to turn to to begin to teach children philosophy, what do you think the reason is that the Greeks themselves didn't involve much teaching of philosophy uh, at a particularly young age? It's a great question. It's a very good question. Well, it, it was barely invented. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't... I don't think they're going to hear you at the back. Sorry, it, no. was, it was... It was um, oh, sorry. Well, it, 
the subject itself was, was barely invented. So you, you get the first use of the word philosophers, as far as I know, is in Herodotus in the middle of the 5th century BC. Uh, but it, it, it's not a tie until you get to people like Socrates at the beginning of the 4th century BC. It's not kind of a career option. Um, and it was dangerous. It was huge that the state were hugely hostile to the early philosophers. Um, they, the oligarchs didn't like philosophy because it taught people to think for themselves and it taught them to question whether virtue is inherited in a bloodline. You, you, we, get, we know that from Plato's Mino. Um, you, you, you know, it's not just Socrates who was put to death. It was very, very dangerous. Protagoras had his books burned and was sent into exile. There are a number of exiles and books burning. Uh, philosophers were seen as kind of against the, the, the political status quo, questioning the state religion. You've got people like Xenophanes. Um, my, you'll find out in a minute why he's my favorite philosopher. Um, and he kind of says humans just invent gods in their own image. If you go down to what they call Ethiopia, the gods will have black skin and certain facial features. If you go up to Thrace, uh, they'll have red hair and blue eyes. Yay! Um, you know, and he said if horses, I think it's horses, I can't remember, it was, you know, could, could paint, they would paint gods in the shape of horses. This was all seen as very, very politically threatening, which that's why it was kind of done on the quiet. Uh, Socrates did it publicly and was put to death. Plato did it outside the, the official city walls of Athens in a little quiet academy grove of olive trees. He had a mad sign over the door saying, let no one enter here who has not studied geometry. You know, he was the mad guy at the end of the pier, and it, and it did save his life. Aristotle got into so much trouble that he escaped. Well, he went into exile twice, and the second time he went into exile was he said he doesn't, didn't want the Athenians to commit a second crime against philosophy. It was seen as a political threat. Okay, it was Andy, done on the quiet. Sorry. Thank you. No, it's great. Um, Sorry. <laughs> where are we? In, down here, yeah. Where is the, the other microphone, by the way? Just what? Thank you. Could I um, direct this to, uh, to, to Vivian? Um, I'm over here. Sorry. <laughs> um, right, so uh, the, the question about philosophy in France. Um, you, you talked about it, I think, more as an academic subject. Um, but I was wondering if, if you could connect those remarks with the remarks about, um, well, with, with some remarks about um, philosophy for children, the methodology that Mary was talking about in the last session. Because that does seem to have a more, it's, I mean, it's, it, it's lower down in the school um, curriculum. Well, not in the curriculum, but I mean, it's practiced lower down in the school. So do you, do you have any sense as to whether these two things are, are, are connected, whether the French have the same difficulties that A-level um, teachers have here, that you know, f students have no idea how to do philosophy, so they struggle terribly when they do it in their, in their last two years? Thanks. Um, Sorry, that's two questions, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly, it's a very good question. It's very interesting. Um, I mean, in terms of Derrida's own work and his own group, they were very interested in radically changing everything. And, and the question of very young children was not at all off the agenda, although it, it wasn't something they then dealt with for a long time. I mean, it doesn't tend to feature much in the debates in France, but I think that's a function of institutionalization because it is so well institutionalized. And also, there is a kind of defensive retrenchment effect where people are so busy defending what's already there, they don't actually look so much beyond that, unfortunately, perhaps. Um, the question of difficulty is obviously a very, very important one. Um, I mean, this is definitely something that, uh, that 
this group were very interested in, and obviously people remain so uh, for very good educational reasons, of course. I mean, they looked at, uh, there was one uh, uh, pilot they did where the literature teacher and a philosophy teacher together, the, the philosopher was uh, Jean-Luc Nancy, the well-known philosopher, um, and they looked at the sort of, they tried to teach the two subjects together, because they said, why is it at the moment in French schools that language, pupils encounter, it's first of all grammar, then some rather boring examples from literature, and only then philosophy and philosophical language, and that's presented the some sort of implicit idea of difficulty there, and why is that the case? Why is that difficulty preset? So, I mean, I think, yes, pedagogically, um, difficulty is the big issue, but I don't think there's the same anxiety about it here, precisely because it already has a prior, long-standing institutionalisation, so it just doesn't operate in the same way. Thank you. Okay, now we've got one there and then one there. So uh, um, there are two interlinking questions. Um, firstly, what skills do you think are needed in order for the foundations of philosophy to occur? And also, how do you think children could be made aware that they are developing those skills? And that's to the table. <laughs> okay. I can't have the table um. answering. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, on the Kantian picture, it is just a matter of uh, basic pedagogical skills, just as uh, the practitioners outlined in the previous uh, round table. Uh, so it is a matter of not concealing things from uh, pupils. Mind you, Kant was uh, did state it rather um, uh, absolutely uh, that, whereas if I'm sure he sat down to think, okay, are we going to give you know, a treatise to a five-year-old, maybe he would have m modified his, his views, modulated somewhat. Uh, I think what he had in mind was precisely this big censorship debate, which is, and so uh, his insistence, like Voltaire's, let's leave things open, but uh, give the proper framework for this, and he provided the formal framework because he was interested in providing a value framework. Uh, but if you ask for practical uh, underpinnings uh, and, and, and guidance and advice, then I don't think that anything of the stuff that was said in uh, the previous table would co contradict that because it is about dialogue, it's about respecting the other, the other person, cultivating your critical skills, but not in that kind of selfish, egoistic uh, um, way that often enlightenment, think for yourself, is interpreted. It's not like, oh, yeah, I think this. So what? It is uh, you undertake, uh, you undertake um, an obligation to, ju to justify your views to, to an audience. Uh, and uh, this ties up with lots of other much more sophisticated contemporary views about truth and value, etc. But uh, the, the, the core is there. So, uh, Wouldn't it be the case, though, Katharina, that uh, the, the essential foundation for doing philosophy for somebody like Kant would be that you are a rational creature? Right, so you don't do philosophy with cats or dogs or horses, you do it with human beings. No. And Kant thought, well, no, okay. No. I, well, one thought there that I know Kant says is that yeah. you can do philosophy with children, but they're just so garrulous yeah. that it doesn't really go anywhere. They're just chatty, 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 and there's yeah. no point in doing it. Sure. Uh, for Kant, we are not rational. We are able to become rational. Uh -huh. Okay, So that's right. very important. Yeah. Uh, animal rationality. So right. uh, that's the whole point of what we're talking about. Okay. Yeah, um, mine's a kind of a common question for um, anyone to pick up on. Um, basically, what I want to say is, is related to the idea also of values. Um, 
and values in relation to philosophy for children. So, um, you know, should there be certain values or should it be neutral, value-free, uh, or should it have some sort of economic or social concerns? Uh, it's mostly about um, pre-university education, but if we look at philosophy, uh, what's happening in higher education, uh, there are, you know, more public institutions where more, you know, sort of uh, working class backgrounds tend to be going to university uh, that are being, um, that are being uh, terminated. So if you look at London Met, for example, where 70% of the humanities courses are being cut, or uh, Greenwich University, again, it's a, you know, a place where many people are from South East London, from uh, harder backgrounds, <laughs> and can study philosophy. Uh, and on the other side, we can see new initiatives, well, such as the new College for the Humanities by Anthony Grayling, which uh, seems to push philosophy in a more elitist or, you know, for those people who can afford it uh, to go and study. Uh, so my question will be related to how does philosophy for children fit in into this? Is there a more kind of radical practice that can show a philosophy for all, regardless of what age they come from, and also regardless of the social e economical background? Or is it more kind of, um, kind of, uh, just regardless of age, but it's only accessible to those people who can afford it. Uh, and, and another consideration I want to I say think, in terms of... I think that's of a good question. Let's, let's hold it for that, if, if you just, don't mind. Just, just to finish, just, just last point. Um, also, you know, doesn't it... Uh, isn't philosophy for children under, under threat from the idea that it's not a higher education, uh, that accessible, therefore a lot of people might say it's not really valuable to do something they cannot follow a university uh, unless they can pay £27,000 and all 60,000 basically kind of, uh, you know, as an option. Okay, good, thanks. Angie, do you want to start with that? Well, I would hope that teaching some philosophy to children is precisely going to help them to be the kind of uh, citizens who can question the current uh, model of education as a factory line producing adults who are going to allegedly just increase gross national product. Um, so, that, you know, so absolutely I want there to be values imbued, not specific political or religious values, obviously, or particular sexual values or anything like that, but of course that the value of questioning current models. I mean, that's why in different ways we, we've been looking at different cultures, we've been looking at different timescales. That gives you the freedom and the ability to question the current status quo and say it doesn't have to be like this, it has been done differently, it can be different again. Humans can construct their individual and communal lives differently. That's a value as far as I'm concerned. Good, thank you. Does anybody else want to add anything on that? Uh, well, yes, I'd agree with that. I mean, I, I think the, the idea of having, sorry, philosophy for all ages should, must be part of an idea of democratisation and, and, and opening it out and take it away from that kind of elite preserve, which it can so easily uh, sit alongside. And in, in, in the French context, just to generalise with carefree abandon, the discourse of the um, 
Republican school is just very, very overt about that and has been so for the last hundred odd years that the duty of the national school system is quite simply social mobility and it will be judged to have succeeded or failed on that basis and that isn't an exciting extra question for the media, that simply is its role and philosophy has been seen, I mean arguably that's changing or has changed somewhat now, um, but has been seen as a kind of marker of that. So it's very embedded in that project. And may I add two things, uh, that precisely in the spirit of the answers uh, we had so far, to add the notion of public good, which is a very uh, unfashionable uh, notion, and the notion of public interest, uh, which is also an unfashionable or a, a notion. I mean, I know it is being invoked, like, oh, I'm interested in this, or I'm interested in who sleeps with whom, but I mean public interest. Uh, and uh, public good and public interest do have a lot to do with the kind of educational ideals we're talking about and practices. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Now, we're running out of time, so I'm going to take uh, two questions. Uh, with one here and then one there. And can we have them both brief and both one after the other? And then they can respond to them. Uh, Katarina, I, I was interested in your emphasis on judgment <coughs> and Matthew Lippmann in his thinking in education says the strengthening of judgment is the main aim of education. Um, and yet it seems to be left out of education these days to the extent that you know, I'm from Australia, as you might gather from the accent, but uh, in Australia we had national norms of education released, the last of which is don't make judgments. <laughs> I'm curious why judgment is so thought of so badly in education. Thank you. And then we'll go straight to that one. I'm sorry. Yep. Thank you, everyone, for a really refreshing evening. Um, what I'd like to ask is I have a five-year-old who is extremely inquisitive, and I would like to encourage him you know, with that philosophically and I would like to know how can I do that at home or you know every on an everyday situation without placing my own judgments into you know how he should perceive things thank, thank you. you very much now Angie I'm going to stick with you again to start with if that's all right well the, the, the first philosophical questions my daughter got involved with maybe not five but maybe six or seven um, she, she really got into can you step into the same river twice she really enjoyed that and she really enjoyed whether nothing, you know, if you write up nothing exists and nothing does not exist and getting people to think about that. As Peter's videos showed, actually, you didn't mention Parmenides, but they were actually discussing Parmenidean questions. Um, they, they just have this, they are natural philosophers. Don't be scared of some of these these apparently big questions. They really enjoy identity. They really get the idea that if the river stops moving, it's a very long lake. They, they get that. OK, okay. thank you. Thank you. Uh, either of the other two on, any, on judgment or uh, philosophy for children? Yes, and uh, on the question of children, um, I have no expertise um, either uh, professionally or directly. My children are pre-philosophically aged four, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, <laughs> Derrida um, and, and Gref were interested in the question of age, obviously this is a big big interest. Uh, as I say, they didn't write directly on very young children. They were wary to an extent of the uh, over-easy construct of children as natural philosophers, um, uh, just the idea of, of children as sort of nat natural artists of some, some value. Um, obviously there is some construct going on there that you want to be a bit careful of. But in terms of enjoying philosophical questions with your children, obviously that makes sense. I mean, of course, yeah. I, 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 can I say something about yeah. judgment that I think re re relates the two questions in, in a rather ni nice way? 
uh, not what I'm going to say, but your questions relate in a really nice way. Uh, well, there are two notions of judgment. Uh, I don't think one should be, uh, uh, should seek not to uh, uh, speak their own judgment. I think we should have the courage of our judgment. Uh, and this is the, so making valid judgments of different sorts, this is true, this is rubbish, is the way to develop judgment in this broader sense that uh, you sought to mention. But at the same time, to have the courage of your judgment does not mean hitting people on the head with them. And, and, and learning and not to be dogmatic is something that one learns all the time. Uh, and it, it, this is a very important uh, a, a, a important character, I suppose, uh, uh, education. So uh, to have the courage of your judgment and yet have also the courage to say, I'm wrong, or I'm, I thought again about it, or yeah, I can hear what you're saying, and so forth. So I hope that ironic <laughs> uh, note. Okay, great. Right, well, we've only gone over four minutes this time, so we will start again at 7 o'clock, back on time. Uh, so let's thank this panel very much. Thank you.